Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon the generous financial contributions of our listeners in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, would you please uh, support Fighting for the Faith financially by joining our crew or sending in a donation to uh, support us financially? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. That's a mere $6.95 a month. Or if you'd like to make a flat contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Monday, August 2nd, 2010. Took a few days off. Recharged the mental battery. Ugh, very much needed. Second changes here to the program lineup. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ. And this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment. The goal of which is to help you to think biblically, to help you to think critically, and to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said out there. And sadly and unfortunately, these uh, many of these crazy things that are being said are being said in Christian churches by men who are supposed to be Christian pastors. And, um, you know, I, you know, we're, what is it, we're uh, 20, not 20, but six, uh, 15 years uh, since the, uh, uh, the publishing of the book, The Purpose Driven Church. And uh, Rick Warren's uh, promise was it's, you know, it, it you, they weren't going to change the message. No, no, no. They weren't going to change the message of Christianity at all. But they were going to update the methods. They were going to make the methods more relevant, more snappy, more appealing to the, the world out there. And uh, But the message, that's timeless and can't change. Well, I've, I've got bad news to announce here. The message has changed. And it's uh, and the seeker-driven and the purpose-driven churches are the ones leading the charge, and they're changing the message. And uh, we chronicle that here on this uh, on this radio program almost on a daily basis. And so, it, it, in in some ways, this is a frustrating work because this has to be done. Error has to be confronted. Lines have to be drawn. And they need to be drawn specifically in the church regarding bad doctrine. And the reality is, is that methods, um, I'm, I'm absolutely convinced they're not theologically neutral. And uh, why? Because the greatest doctrinal and theological slippage is taking place in the churches that are um, most seeking to, well, be attractive to the world. And uh, you know, Ed Stetzer put this uh, thing out, basically saying, "Oh, the, the you know, we we need to do church uh, for the unchurched. The church needs to exist for the uh, for the unchurched people." And I just send him an, 
a tweet and said, uh, can you show me a single passage in the Bible that says the church exists for the world or for the unchurched people out there? Uh, James himself says that uh, friendship with the world is enmity toward God. So I don't think the church exists for the world. Um, I ultimately think that the church exists for the glory of God and that the world is a competing system. It's a competing value system. It's a con uh, competing theological, philosophical system. And uh, the church is not compatible with what the world is up to doing and trying to achieve. Uh, Jesus has his own goals in mind, and they're not the goals, same goals as the world. And so as a result of it, we there's there's some problems. This is probably the best way to put it. And so if if there are churches out there who are compromising and trying to be friends with the world or existing for the world, I think they're, they, we, the church exists for God and his glory, not for the world. In fact, God is going to condemn and judge the world. And so we're to be about the business of being ambassadors of a different kingdom, of a different system altogether, who has a different ruler, a different set of values, and a different, I mean, that's really, we're ambassadors of that kingdom in this world. And in some regions of this world, being an ambassador for the kingdom of God will get you killed. It's already getting you persecuted here in the United States. Anyway, oh. <laughs> I told you I'd had to take a couple of days off. I took three days off. I took Friday off, Saturday off, and I took Sunday off. No Twittering, no Facebooking. I didn't even read any theology, didn't even go. I try to stay as far away from my laptop as I possibly can. Or could. Why? I needed to recharge my batteries. I, I think they, they're about 80% recharged, which means I, I'm going to need to take just a little bit more time off, but I'll figure out when I can work that in. But, uh, yeah, I, I spent the weekend outdoors uh, with my uh, with my daughters and my wife. Uh, you know, we did anything and everything except theology. The only, In fact, the only time I heard God's word was at church. And, you know, that's where I needed it, and it um, it was uh, nice to just step away for a little bit, recharge the batteries, take little mini vacations along the way until uh, I can figure out a way to take a larger vacation. But you know, I'll, I'll figure that out. Just one of these days, I'll work that in. Anyway, so oh, man, yeah, glad to be back in in the saddle. I'm recharged and ready to get at it. And already, I'm kind of you know, I've I've got more than I can do. Uh, in one uh, one edition of Fighting for the Faith. Let's take a look at what I want to talk about on the program today. I have an email from Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley. Uh, he's uh, weighed in on the uh, Richard Cohn. That's the uh, black uh, liberation theology guy. And uh, Pastor Charmley, I mean, it's hard to get anything past him. And he's uh, picked up on some of the things that that even slipped by me. And I, I got to admit, my jaw was on the floor most of the time I was listening to Richard Cohn, so it, it makes <laughs> it doesn't surprise me that things slip by me. But man, oh man, there was so much there. I don't think any one person could catch it all. But uh, Pastor Charmley has uh, weighed in on this, and uh, we're going to take a look at that. And uh, let's see, we got news from the UK. There's a vicar in the United Kingdom who's telling his church goers to swear more. <clears throat> yeah. 
Then the Anne Rice thing. I, I'm sure you're familiar with the fact that Anne Rice has said that she's quit Christianity. And um, I know that I need to weigh in on this. And I found a, a, a pretty good uh, response. And, uh, in fact, I found the, the link to this. Uh, Russell D. Moore, uh, he's, uh, I think he's of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. And uh, he has uh, a great post that he put together called Anne Rice Hasn't Betrayed You. And I agree with much of what he says here, and I wanted to read his response by way kind of springboard and you know i'll weigh in a little bit into the ann rice thing because i I have my own opinions about it and uh but i like the way that uh, he handled it and um and so we'll take we got to weigh in on ann rice that's kind of an obligation it's (laughs) when i signed up to do this radio gig that was i you know i signed up to you you have to respond to big news stories like that especially uh news stories like that as they pertain to religion so we're going to be uh, weighing in on that, and let's see here. Um, uh, depending on our time here, um, got a great Spurgeon quote that uh, was posted at the Pyromaniacs blog that I want to pass along. It's uh, the uh, the blog post is entitled "Cold Blooded Liberal Charity." Ooh, it, it's just one of those. Sometimes there's a quote out there that just nails it, and the thing is, is that. Folks, what we're experiencing, this is nothing new in in one sense, and that is is that um, the church has always faced error and people who are apostates. And uh, you know, if if you understand, even in Jesus's day, the Sanhedrin was split up into two factions. Uh, one was the Pharisees, who for kind of think of them as legalistic Pietists. These were the um, the uh, religious right of uh, Jesus's day. This is one way that you can like them. And then you had the Sanhedrin. They were smarter than the Pharisees because they knew that, you know, miracles, angels, <laughs> you know, resurrections from the dead, poppycock, that doesn't happen. And so they didn't believe in any of that stuff. They were kind of like the liberals of uh, of Jesus's day. And so the more things change, the more they stay the same. And so uh, yeah, man, what we're facing in the church today, in one sense, isn't new. The one thing that is different, though, is uh, is that there doesn't seem to be much of a backbone and a resolve to do the, well, thankless and, well, quite frankly, frustrating work of saying, no, that's not what God's Word says. We have to draw lines. And if, if if anything, we should look today at what has happened to the ELCA as a warning to what happens to church bodies and groups that refuse to draw hard theological lines, who refuse to do the work of basically getting into the fray, getting into the battle, and... um and saying, no, God's word says this. These folks are contradicting God's word. They must be called to repentance because they're teaching false doctrine and leading people astray. And so, you know, when you look at the two bodies, you look at the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, of which I am a member of, and you look at the ELCA, the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, back in the 1970s, had a a fight. The LCMS had a fight. And what happened is, is that the liberals, those who are buying into higher critical 
biblical methods and interpretations. Um, they were given the left foot of fellowship. They were tossed out of, of the, the St. Louis Seminary, and that, that needed to happen. And as a result of that, the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod is still a confessional body for the most part today. I detect that eventually we're going to have a showdown with the seeker-driven guys because here's the deal. The first step towards liberalism always is a capitulation and a compromise with the culture. And it, what's happening in the seeker-driven movement is the exact same thing that was happening back in the early 20th century with the, the, the modernist liberals. They they capitulated to the culture, and it ended up in the complete decimation of the mainline denominations. I mean, they're basically uh, complete liberal cesspools to this day. So, you know, and apparently we didn't learn our lesson from history, so now we've got to do it again. And so... Again, the first step towards liberalism is is to make basically concessions to the culture. And so that's what the seeker-driven uh, movement is doing. And so what's happening here in the LCMS is that um, there is a neoliberalism that's growing right now, and it has as its centralized headquarters uh, the, those who are buying into the seeker-driven methodologies uh, that are being put out there. Now, th these pastors will say, no, 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 we're not changing the message. It's we're we're still teaching our same Lutheran. We're just changing our methodologies to which I could say, hmm, yeah, that's exactly what Rick Warren was promising. And uh, no, the purpose driven church movement is completely uh, I mean, it's bankrupt theologically, doctrinally, spiritually at this point uh, because it, it's put the uh, culture in the driver's seat. So, I mean, these are not theologically neutral methods as a result of it. What has to happen is that people have got to roll up their sleeves, open up their Bibles, and say, no, God has already spoken on this, and here's what he said. We have to even judge our methods in light of Scripture, because methods are not theologically neutral. They are not. Certain practices are basically by nature, contrary to the biblical gospel. That has to be understood. Not only that, uh, now that I've I've talked to some guys who've come out of seeker-driven uh, churches within the LCMS, <laughs> and I know what's going on inside baseball in some of these congregations, yeah, I can tell you that, that it, this is not, these are not guys who are theologically neutral at all. In fact, they've bought into much of the heretical ideas and errors of uh, basically decision decisionist uh, revivalist uh, American evangelicalism. So as a result of it, we got some big problems. Anyway, all of that being said, um, yeah, the the idea here is is that um, uh, the, the methods are not neutral. That is one of the things I'm going to come back to. But anyway, talking about what we're going to talk about on the program more today. Um, if uh, time uh, permitting, uh, let's see here. I've got a, um, I've got a article written by Jim Wallace called "New Economy, New Energy: Lessons from Jesus's Sermon on the Mount." And uh, boy, this is a complete mangling of uh, uh, Matthew chapter seven, uh, like verses twenty four, twenty six, twenty seven, twenty eight, somewhere in that neighborhood. And uh, this ought to give you an idea of uh, Jim Wallace's theology. By the way, Jim has uh, 
for the time being, declined to come on the program, but he's open to the idea of coming on the program sometime in the fall. And I have in my possession now a preview copy of his forthcoming book. And uh, so I thought, uh, I think it's called Rediscovering Values. And uh, so I'm uh, going to be previewing that and reviewing it. And then our sermon review today, we're going to be doing a short sermon uh, review today, a bad one. And uh, this comes from uh, Carrie Shook Ministries, uh, the Woodlands uh, Fellowship, or Fellowship of the Woodlands, I think it's just Woodlands Church now, in uh, Woodlands, Texas, which is north of Houston. And the name of the sermon is called Motocross. And if you um, if you follow me on Facebook and Twitter, then you know that uh, toward the end of the week last week, the Museum of Idolatry put an exhibit up showing a video of from this particular sermon entitled Motocross. And in that sermon, Carrie Shook uh, paid the money to basically have the entire stage at this uh, at his um, self help center um, to transform it into kind of a like a mountain bike looking theme type thing uh and there was two big dirt ramps in there and he brought in a professional motocross jumper and uh had him do a demonstration during the sermon during the sermon and i mean this kind of comes back to the question you know uh will carrie shook be the first pastor to uh to purchase and use the midget cannon expansion pack yeah, that's my question. Will he be the first pastor to actually fire a midget out of a cannon inside of his uh, church during the sermon? I'm yeah, I'm just wondering if this is what's going to happen. But anyway, we're going to be listening to the sermon because it was obviously an evangelistic type sermon. And uh, but I want you to hear the gospel that he preached and see how he used the motocross um, sermon illustration, if you would, to help reinforce the gospel that he was preaching. And then I asked the question, was this the biblical gospel? Now, that being said, starting tomorrow, I'm going to do something I, I don't think I've I've done yet. Maybe I'm wrong. I have to go back through my archives and see if this is uh, not the case. Uh, but uh, I'm going to review um, in, on successive days, uh, two, possibly three, depending um sermons from the same sermon series and so that you can hear them back to back and uh, maybe back to back to back so that you can see what's going on here uh David Hughes of uh, Church by the Glades uh he's uh, in the he's getting ready to wrap up this Sunday he's going to be wrapping up a four part series entitled Domination which is supposedly a biblically based sermon series based upon the book of Joshua, and the first in the uh, the first sermon in the series is entitled "Getting Unstuck," and boy, oh boy, is this one got this one is just really, really problematic at best. And I, I got to tell you that these folks that are misquoting Jeremiah, I have a plan for you, declares the Lord, you know, to prosper you, to give you a future and a hope, and all like, oh yeah, 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 yeah. I if I've, I mean, how many times have I had to correct that and just put it back into context? Well, I'm beginning to think that uh, there's an entire heresy growing up around misreading that passage. And uh, so we're going to take a look at that sermon series. We're going to look at uh, the first sermon, Getting Unstuck. For sure, the next day, we're going to look at the next sermon in the series entitled Divine Directions. And then, depending on how I feel um, toward the end of the week, we're gonna, we're, we'll look at the third sermon entitled Almost. 
But uh, I also need to inform you on Wednesday. On Wednesday, I will be uh, uh, I will be out of studio, and so there will be a um, a best of program on Wednesday. I am going to be speaking at an event. Hang on a second here. Let me uh, make sure I've got my uh, uh, my. <sighs> Let's see here. Um, let me make sure I've got this. Uh, my confirmation of the event here. I'm going to be speaking at the Worldview Boot Camp. Um, in fact, you can uh, get information um, at the, about this at worldviewbootcamp.org. And uh, the, the, uh, this, I'm going to be teaching at Harbor Shores Church on this coming Wednesday. The, the, let's see, today's the 2nd, 3rd, 4th, on, on August 4th. And uh, well, let me f- make sure I've got this, uh, the date and the time. Uh, the training, let's see here. Um, yeah, I the I will be speaking starting at seven o'clock, and so um, the uh, the doors open at uh, six thirty, and I'm putting up a um, a link to this at fightingforthefaith.com. But uh, so on Wednesday I will be out of the studio, and there'll be a best of program. So August fourth at uh, six thirty at uh, Harbor Shores Church in Noblesville, Indiana. For more information, visit worldviewbootcamp.org. If you are in the uh, in central Indiana and uh, would like to come out, would love to have an opportunity to uh, to meet with uh, meet with you. And that my topic is reclaiming biblical doctrine, fundamentals of reading, studying and proclaiming the word of God. And so uh you know, it'll be fun to have you all out there and uh, it'll be rather interesting, but again, so Wednesday is going to be a best of program. So I'm broadcasting today, tomorrow, Wednesday. I'm I'm out of office, out of studio, and then Thursday and Friday uh, will be normal uh, editions of Fighting for the Faith. So I uh, just wanted to let you know that ahead of time. And uh, with that, we're going to dive into the program proper. Let's uh, go. All right, uh, email today is from uh, Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley. And uh, Pastor Charmley is weighing in on the uh, Richard Cone, or I'm not Richard, uh, James Cone. Richard, where did I get that from? Anyway, um, he's going to, Pastor Charmley is going to pick up on some of the things that I missed. All right, so Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley writes, he says, uh, Dear Chris, it seems to me you've missed a few tricks with James Cone. I, <laughs> I'm sure that I have. Let's continue. He says, first of all, just how poor and powerless is Char- the Charles Augustus Briggs Distinguished Professor of Theology at Union Seminary, New York? <clears throat> now, Pastor Charmley, you're not supposed to ask questions like that. It makes it sound like you're accusing James Cone, the Charles Augustus Briggs Distinguished Professor of Theology, of potentially not being powerless and therefore being somewhat hypocritical. (laughs) Uh, uh, Pastor Charlie points out that uh, James Cone has tenure. He has book royalties, and he teaches, which is usually a position of power. So, So I ask... How powerless and poor is a liberal university professor at America's leading liberal seminary? Uh, The answer would seem to be not very. This is a great point, Pastor Charmley. Second, he says, you miss 
that in Cohen's theology, if we may call it that, the black man is always the powerless and the poor and the oppressed and the white man, uh, the rich oppressor. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's always the case. I've noticed that. He says, now this is self-evidently absurd. How many poor white people are there? A lot when I, uh, when I last looked. There were even more in the past. Indeed, the book White Cargo by Don Jordan and Michael Wash uh, Walsh, uh, published uh, by Mainstream Publishing in 2007, shows that before there were black slaves in America, there were white slaves, and some even owned by blacks. Now, you can't be pointing out historical facts like this. Uh, James Cone has already got his mind made up, and his theology is already written, and this could ruin you know, mess up royalty deals and, and could affect uh, negatively his book sales. And keep in mind, he's he's powerless. <clears throat> um, this book has not made the bestsellers list. As for black slaves, the first-generation slaves were not captured by white slavers. They were captured by other Africans or sold by their own families. See the book Sweet Waters and Bitter by Cyan Rees, uh, which was published by Chateau and Windus in 2009. In the West African context, it was rich and powerful blacks oppressing poor and powerless blacks. But Cohn flattens out all the contours of history, and to him, all white people are bad. What even the seventeen hundred British sailors, uh, seventeen thousand British sailors who lost their lives fighting the slave trade. There were 17,000 British slave, uh, uh, sailors who lost their lives fighting the slave trade? Wow. And all black people are good. All white people are oppressors and should be, uh, pay reparations, even if they are descended from people who came to the U.S. after 1865 and their family never had any connection with all the slave, at all with the slave trade. Right, exactly. Uh, the talk about the poor masks and the fact that to cone all black people who agree with him are poor, even if they are rich. Jeremiah Wright, pastor of the largest church in his denomination and one of the richest, and all black people who disagree with him aren't really black, uh, which is very convenient if the facts stand in his way. So much as so much for the facts. I consider James Cone and the Ku Klux Klan to be two sides of the same coin. Yep. Pastor Charmley, you're right. And that's the thing that has to be said. Now, I know it's not politically correct to say such a thing, but this is true. Racism, regardless of what race you are a member of, is still racism. So there is white racism and there is black racism. James Cone, really, I, I think you're right, Pastor Charmley. He sounds exactly like a KKK member, except for he doesn't wear the white cape. But his racism is every bit as repugnant and wicked as any racism displayed and believed and held to by somebody in the KKK. I consider James Cone and the Ku Klux Klan to be two sides of the same coin. It has been pointed out that Cone relies on a synthetic version of the black experience as the basis for his teaching. Synthetic version. That's a good way of putting it. Very Hegelian, if you would. His world is, in fact, utterly artificial as it contains only poor blacks. 
presumably including distinguished theological professors and white and rich whites, presumably including the grandmother of one of our church members whose drunkard husband sold all the furniture for drink while she had to work two full-time jobs, walking barefoot between them to save shoe leather. Incidentally, this may explain why James Cone's theology has little influence in the U.K., where in the 19th century it was whites who were poor and powerless. Amusingly, feminist liberation theologians have attacked him as patriarchal, at which point I laughed loudly and go back to studying the Bible. Great email, Pastor Charmley. Thank you for the uh, for the update and for pointing out some of the the historical facts that uh, I apparently have not read or have been privy to. But thanks to your good work and scholarship, we're able to uh, pass those along to uh, the listeners here at Fighting for the Faith. All right, we're going to take our first break, and, uh, and then when we get back, we're going to dive into our news stories today. So uh, stay tuned. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. Uh, my email address is uh, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. If you think God is a black woman named Papa, then you need to get out of the shack and read your Bible. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> So the new pastor came in and shut down the Sunday school, uh, canceled the adult Bible study, no. dumped the hymnals, oh, sacked the choir, and put man. in a praise band and started preaching sermons that sound like they could be preached or done on Dr. Phil's program. It's awful. I didn't expect a kind of purpose-driven inquisition. Nobody expects the purpose-driven inquisition. Our chief weapon is purpose. Purpose and vision. Vision and purpose are two weapons. Our purpose and vision. And ruthless relevance are three weapons. Our purpose, vision, and ruthless relevance in an almost fanatical devotion to record are four weapons. Now, amongst our weaponry are such elements as purpose, vision. I'll, I'll come in again. <clears throat> I didn't expect a kind of purpose-driven inquisition. Nobody expects a purpose-driven inquisition. Amongst our weaponry are such diverse elements as purpose, vision, ruthless relevance, and almost fanatical devotion to Rick Warren and nice Hawaiian shirts. Oh, damn. I can't say it. You'll have to say it. Uh, what? You'll have to say what the bit about our chief weapons are. Uh, I, I couldn't do that. <clears throat> I 
I didn't expect a kind of purpose-driven inquisition. Uh, nobody uh, expects. Uh, expects no. Nobody expects the um, purpose-driven inquisition. Uh, I, I know. I know. Nobody expects the purpose-driven inquisition. In fact, those who do chief weapons are our chief weapons are um, purpose. Uh, uh, vision. Okay, and okay, stop, stop that, stop that. Our chief weapons are purpose. Blah, 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 blah. Youth Pastor Rick, read the charges. Dude, you're like hereby charged with being divisive and not following our program. That's enough! Now, how do you plead? Well, we're, we're innocent. innocent. Ha! 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 <laughs> ha! We'll soon change your mind about that! Dr. Rod Rosenblatt discussing the church's need for world-class scholarship and the unique way in which the British academic model offered at the Wittenberg Institute can help provide you with a top-level postgraduate theological degree. Christians are dependent on good scholarship in a way that sometimes we forget. Think of Tyndall House in England. Some of those evangelicals were so ruled away from the big table conversation in the Church of England that they had to develop graduate training under particular guys who had a high view of Christ and a high view of Scripture. Over the years, they did marvelous stuff with individual young scholars who came there to be trained. So what's the difference between the European model and the American model? The European is used to saying things like, I studied under so-and-so, and the American, uh, that's pretty foreign. And I'm not here talking about the diploma mills. I'm talking about somebody who is tutored, something like Oxford or at Cambridge, and uh, walked through graduate work. If you would like more information about the Wittenberg Institute's British-styled research master's degree, then visit them on the web at wittenberginstitute.org forward slash PCR or call them at area code 425-533-8659. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. back 
warning. Listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to become supremely supremely dissatisfied with your church. Yeah, it's one of the dangers of listening to this program. Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring this important radio outreach to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And, of course, if you would like to uh, specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can make a one-time contribution by visiting, uh, by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that along to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Okay, moving along here. Man, I'm... Not going to get everything done. From the Telegraph in the UK, the headline reads, Vicar tells churchgoers to swear more. Okay. This is written by Andy Bloxham uh, from the uh, Telegraph in the United Kingdom. And uh, as a former place of worship for Sir Edward Elger, uh, Elger, and William Wordsworth, the Church of St. Mary the Virgin is in, uh, in, in Hare, I'm going to mess this up, Herefordshire uh, might uh, be expected to be a haven of calm and tradition. Uh, the Norman Church has stood for hundreds of years in the tranquil village of Burghill in the countryside surrounding by, surrounded by apple and pear orchards. However, it's Vicar who used to work in the east end of London is urging parishioners to more ag- uh, to move more aggressively into the modern age by swearing more. <clears throat> right, yeah. Uh, Reverend Michael Land, who's 67, said Christians needed to adopt swearing in their everyday language because it's how Jesus would have spoken. What? on earth is he talking about uh, <laughs> in all of my translation work in the greek i don't recall jesus swearing <sighs> um he said too many people put jesus on a pedestal <laughs> what we put jesus he's god <laughs> oh no <laughs> He's God in human flesh. Putting him on a pedestal? He's the God who made us. Uh, Apparently there's too many people putting Jesus on a pedestal. And uh, failed to realize that he was poor, relatively uneducated, and preferred not to mix with the elite of his day. Really, he preferred not to mix with the elite of his day. The last time I read the Gospels, Jesus... um, he had dinner with and dined with, let's see, tax collectors. Those wouldn't be the elite of his day. Prostitutes, definitely not the elite. Uh, but he also hung out and had dinner at the homes of Pharisees. And um, and uh, those would be considered part of the elite of his day. And uh, it didn't, I don't recall a passage that said that Jesus really preferred not to eat or hang out with the elite of his day, but 
you know, begrudgingly did it from time to time. Jesus said that he came to seek and save the lost. Okay? He came for sinners. Um, That would include Pharisees, Sadducees, tax collectors, prostitutes, uh, fishermen, farmers, um, uh, Roman soldiers. I mean, everybody qualifies in that category. Anyway... He added that the church risked becoming out of touch with ordinary people if its clergy did not become streetwise and failed to use earthy language. Reverend Land even backed up his suggestion with the admission that once while driving and wearing his dog collar, he had beeped another motorist who almost caused an accident and then wound down his window and then swore at him. He was wearing a dog collar. Is is that what they call the collars that uh, clerics wear? Uh, the clerical group uh, cast wears there in uh, Great Britain, dog collar, or maybe he was he's was a Friday. It was a Friday night, and he'd taken off his clerical collar and was wearing a dog collar. Um, you know the ones with the spikes. <clears throat> his attitude is reminiscent of the lead character in the new BBC Two television show Rev, which stars Tom Hollander. And, Rev, and Reverend Adam Smallbone, a vicar who drinks, smokes, and swears while tackling parish problems. Uh, Reverend Land, who, who is retired but still preaches at uh, Berg Hill occasionally, said, The church must be more streetwise and use language most people use today. People view Jesus through tinted spectacles and place him on a pedestal. The reality is that he was poor and lacked any real education and did not fraternize with Pharisees or scholars. Yeah, that's not true. Um, he fraternized and ate with them all the same. People today would probably be quite shocked at the language he used at that time. Can you give me an example of that, uh, Reverend Land? Uh, Reverend Land, who moved to the area two years ago, uh, has three adult sons and lives with his wife, Dawn, who's 62. He spent 28 years trying to help drug addicts and gang members in in um, in. in I'm going to mess this up, Walthamstow, and he described the uh, driving incident and said, someone pulled out in front of me, so I sounded my horn. The driver got out of his car and came over to me. I wound down my I, I wound my window down and said, what do you have to learn? Uh, why don't you learn to effing drive, he said, walked away, and I don't think he could believe it. I did not remove my clerical collar. Why should I? I, I did it then, and I do it again, and I'm afraid to tell <clears throat> this kind of leads to the question, what does the Bible t- say about such things? Um, let me. I found a couple of relevant passages, and uh, let me just run a couple of these by you. Now, uh, keep in mind, I'm reading these out of context, and uh, you need to go back and put them in context. Be- and the reason why is because Christianity isn't a religion that makes you more moral. Well, it can, and it does, but it's that's really not the primary idea here. It's not about do-goodism and moralism, things like that. That being the case, then, though, all of the things that we do through the sanct- what really is the sanctifying work of the Spirit in our lives focuses in on Christ and Him crucified for our sins. And so I hesitate to discuss moral imperatives in the Scripture um, outside of the light of uh, Christ and him crucified for our sins, especially from something like the book of Colossians, which 
first and foremost preaches the gospel to us before it then turns around and says how this applies in our everyday life. So that in mind, let me read to you uh, Colossians chapter 3. I'm going to start at verse 5. Um, but understand, in context, this is the, the greater context includes the gospel. Okay? We Christians do, uh, do good works because that's what Christians do by nature. We are in, we're new creations in Christ. And so we do good works because that's, partly that's what, you know, that's our new nature does good works. And even deeper than gratitude is this idea that, uh, this is God's will for us. It's God's will that we do good works. And so it is, with this in mind, let's uh, read Colossians chapter 3, verse 5. Uh, the Apostle Paul writes, This is put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you? Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, covetousness, which is idolatry. Now, on account of, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In in these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Put away anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Hence there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. So, I mean, just looking at this, um, yeah, we're to put away, Christians are to put away obscene talk, and in light of the gospel, in light of the good news of Christ died for our sins, we're to, um, you know, put to death earthly passions and what's earthly in us. Um, in fact, um, and by the way, I think we should put Jesus on a pedestal because he is God. By the way, the disciples worshipped him as if he were his God because he is. Um, so, yeah, this idea of, yeah, Jesus should be on a pedestal and this idea that he didn't hang with uh, Pharisees and scholars, uh, that's just not true. Read your, read the Gospels. Jesus hung out with them, asked the, answered their questions, asked them questions in return. And when they didn't repent, he called down woes on them. And that was not just something that was reserved to the Pharisees. Jesus called down woes on common folk, too, in all the different towns after hearing the gospel that didn't repent. Woe to you, Bethsaida. Woe to you. Yeah, you know, look that up. Yeah, so <clears throat> what? I don't know what's uh, gotten into uh, this uh, vicar uh, guy but uh, in Great Britain, but what he be saying... Yeah, it just doesn't. That doesn't square with scripture. Yeah, you know, um, you know, Christians, let your conversation always be full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Uh, um, yeah. So the Bible does talk about this idea, and it contradicts the um, the not so sage advice of um, this uh, uh, vicar in uh, in Great Britain. The Reverend Michael Land. Moving along. Okay, I'm glad I got that out of my system here. Um, it, let me read this one first, and then I, I looking at the time here, we're going to have to do the Jim Wallace piece tomorrow, but that's okay. We'll we will get to that uh, tomorrow. Um, Phil Johnson, who is uh, recovering from back surgery, keep him in your prayers as he recovers from back surgery. Um, he uh, put a post up uh, yesterday. 
which is a, qu- a quote from uh, Spurgeon. Oh, man, is this a doozer. And the name of it is Cold-Blooded Liberal Charity. And uh, Spurgeon opines, and he writes, he says, The very persons who talk most about being liberal in their views are generally the greatest persecutors. If I must have a religious enemy, let me have a professed and avowed bigot, but not one of your free thinkers or broad churchmen, as they are called. For there is nobody who can hate as they do, and the lovers of liberal-mindedness who have no creed at all think it to be their special duty to be peculiarly contemptuous to those who have some degree of principle and cannot twist and turn exactly as they can. Oh, boy, have I found this to be true. Yes, absolutely. Great Spurgeon quote. Thank you, Phil Johnson, and you are in our prayers and hope that uh, you're recovering uh, from your back surgery and that you'll be uh, back to your uh, old self in no time. Okay, now, uh, last week at the end of the week, Ann Rice uh, basically put out a a Facebook thing and then it got all over the Internet. It was kind of like all the buzz of the Internet uh, at the end of last week that she's renounced Christianity. And if you want more details on it, you know, just type in Ann Rice and you know, we go from there. Now, something to keep in mind. I know I remember she was interviewed on the White Horse Inn a few years back uh, regarding Christianity. And it came out that she's she was a practicing Roman Catholic. OK. So there are some issues there, but uh, let me the best piece I've seen on this was actually linked to the Pyromaniacs blog. And this was written by Russell D. Moore of uh, Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. And the name of it is Anne Rice Hasn't Betrayed You. I thought this was well done. Uh, he, uh, Moore writes, he says, yesterday, the Internet was abuzz with news that Anne Rice has renounced Christianity. The best-selling vampire novelist who professed faith in Christ several years ago and has since written several books about Jesus and her conver- and conversion publicly quit Christianity on her Facebook page. There's, there's a real opportunity here that hinges on how we respond to this or rather how we respond to her. Anne said that she was leaving Christianity because she just couldn't be, quote, anti-gay, anti-feminist, and so forth. The response was immediate, especially on Christian forums and comments on blogs on uh, various other forms of media. Anne Rice is, at best, our sister in Christ who's going through a dark night of the soul. She is, at the very least, someone who has encountered something of the light of Christ, is drawn to it, and is now kicking against the goads. That's a a quote from uh, the book of Acts and uh, Jesus describing, uh, talking to uh, the Apostle Paul before he became the Apostle Paul on his road to Damascus. In either case, she is not our enemy. Anne's case is a little unique because she's a national celebrity. She has a Facebook page that people pay attention to, but she's really not all that different uh, to the ex-prisoner now following Christ who told me not long ago that he's contemplating giving it all up and going back to cocaine and prostitutes. Well, of course he is. We are walking through a time of temptation and wilderness in which there's a struggle in the air for every Christ-branded psyche. Yeah, I agree with you, uh, uh, Dr. Moore. He continues to says, The church cannot see rejection of Christ as some kind of personal reproach, or worse yet, an ideological declaration of war. We have to love our prodigal sons and daughters so that if and when the dark night of the soul is over, they have a place to come home to. Anne says that she still loves Jesus, but she doesn't love Christianity. Yes, I know that it is impossible to love Jesus without loving his church. I've preached that for years, and I still believe it. 
But can't you see how someone could wrestle against that? I am thankful that I have been a Christian long enough to have gained some kind of maturity before I just before I saw just how vicious Christianity can be. I think it ought to be uh, it ought to instruct us here as to how Jesus handled situations like these. Jesus was fierce in his denunciation of those with power, including religious and ecclesial power. He never shied away from confronting personal sin in anyone including the wounded and the vulnerable but he did in a completely different he did it in a completely different way think of the woman at the well the the woman caught in adultery the demonized villagers and and on and on jesus never snuffs out that smoldering wick never breaks that bruised reed and it's because he loves yes anne rice has renounced Christianity. Maybe it's a permanent move away from the gospel, showing that she never quite made it all the way into communion with Christ. That's kind of a reformed way of looking at it. Uh, Lutherans would have a different way. If so, let's represent Christ and continue to point her to the Jesus she finds in some way mystifying. It could be that Anne is a Christian who is having a wave of doubt and rejection. So did the apostle uh, Peter, who also renounced Christianity and, as a matter of fact, cursed Jesus personally in the process. But when Jesus finds Peter in Galilee, right back on the fishing boats where he'd been called from in the first place, he never even mentions the incident at the fireside. Although he does, in a sense, do it with feed my sheep. He three times. <clears throat> a lot of us, and I include myself in this, are a lot like James and John in the Christ rejecting village. We want to call down fire from heaven on the opponents of Christianity. That seems so prophetic and, and Christian, and it also happens to confirm us to be right. Jesus' response to this zeal ought to stop us in our tracks. Jesus turned and rebuked them and then went on to another village. Anne Rice hasn't rejected you. Anne Rice hasn't betrayed you. Would you pray for her and other smoldering wicks about to bolt potential prodigals in your church and maybe in your home? It could be Anne has been deeply hurt by what she has seen in Christianity. Or it could be that, like Jesus' disciples, the closer she's drawing to Christ, the more she's made uncomfortable by it. So let's love her. Jesus' disciples and Peter again, after all, were ready, to it seems, to quit Christianity when on the Galilean lakeshore, after he had some disturbing things done, some said some disturbing things, Jesus asked Peter, Will you also go away? But at the end of it all, Peter had to confess, To whom shall we go? Jesus, you have the words of eternal life. Maybe Anne Rice will conclude the same thing. In the meantime, let's not demonize the prodigal daughter. Let's give her room to come home, if and when she wants. Let's not verify her experience of angry, raging Christians. Maybe it will take a vampire novelist to teach us that light stings sometimes when you're coming out of the darkness. Great points, Dr. Moore. Great points. We don't want to bludgeon our prodigal. And, you know, my initial response after I, uh, after I read Anne Rice's, you know, quitting of Christianity is it were something that Jesus said. And, um, the, uh, let me see if I can find this. It's in Jesus's Olivet Discourse. Um, and, uh, let's see, hang on a second here, doing a quick word search, make sure I've got the, yep, I got it. And, uh, it's Matthew chapter 24. And I, I want to read to you what Jesus says about the end days. Okay. 
And um, this is interesting. Matthew 24, I'm going to start at verse 3. As he sat down on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming in the close of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place. But the end is not yet. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginnings of birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. You will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because of lawlessness, because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. I want to reread verses 11 and 12. Many false prophets will arise and lead many astray, and because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. Verse 10, many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. We live in a very dangerous time. I mean, one that I I think, from my study of Christian history, is almost unprecedented. In fact, I think it's unprecedented uh, what we're seeing happening in our times. We're seeing an increase in lawlessness and an increase in false doctrine and teaching. And the, the reality is, is that many of the doctrines taught in Scripture and taught by Christ and taught by God in the Scriptures, they are not easy to come to grips with. And it's really easy to just say, I, I don't want to believe that. I've, I've wrestled down this road and wrestled with God and his word and had to repent multiple, multiple times of ideas that I have held on to, teachings and thoughts and philosophies that I've held on to that contradict God's word. And that has only taken place as a result of the working of the Holy Spirit in God's word. And two things came to mind. Anne Rice, when she said that she quit Christianity, she says she doesn't want to be anti-gay and anti-feminist. And the reality is, is that Christianity and Jesus is neither anti-gay or anti-feminist. And what I mean by that is this. The current homosexual movement that is out there wants people to recognize same-sex relationships as synonymous uh, with married relationships. After all, they love each other. But God's Word is so clear that that behavior is sexual perversion that is contrary to the way God made us and contrary to the way in which God has put uh, on humanity specific demands that say this gift, the gift of sex, 
is to be used only in certain ways and in certain contexts and ways in which then there are ways in which that is a gift that is abused and misused and as a result of it is sinful behavior okay yeah you, know, you think about it there's more than one way that god has restricted how the gift of sex is to be used okay this bible prohibits incest the bible prohibits um what is it? Pedophilia. The Bible pro- prohibits bestiality. The Bible prohibits adultery. The Bible. Pro- There's a lot of different limits. God has put limits on how this, uh, on how this gift of sex is to be used. And homosexuality is just one of those limits. Now, a lot of people want to say, "Well, listen, we live in the 21st century now. This is a postmodern era. Um, you know." We've got science that says that people are born this way with a disposition like that. They're just naturally attracted to it. And the Bible's answer to that is that's probably the case. But that doesn't justify it. And the reason why it doesn't is because the Bible makes it clear that all of us by nature, our our natures have been corrupted, so corrupted and blown out by sin that each of us, Basically, we're we're perverse and sinful in so many different ways that some people have particular pet sins that other people just don't have, and some people naturally gravitate get gravitate 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 towards certain sins while others don't gravitate towards them at all. It wouldn't surprise me that there are people who that are naturally attracted to people of the same sex. That is not uh, that is not God's stamp of approval. On that behavior, see that's the problem. Is they they think that if if people are naturally inclined to go that way, that that means that God must approve of it. That completely d- denies that we are all by nature dead in trespasses and sins, and uh, our sinful natures are completely at war with God. This is a result of the fall, not a result of some redeeming value, and so Christianity is not anti-gay. In, in this sense, Christianity teaches that Christ died for the sins of even people who have committed homosexual perversion. As just as much as Christ has died for the sins of those who have committed adultery, uh, fornication, name all the different perversions that are listed and prohibited in God's word. Christ died for those sins. And sinfulness is not freedom sinfulness is slavery see the real problem that we all have is that we are in bondage to sin christ has set us free set us free to love god and love neighbor in christ through the forgiveness of our sins through his death burial and resurrection and christ is the one who sets us free not to be in bondage to sin anymore but to be set free from it And we anxiously hope for and yearn for Christ's return and for Jesus to restore everything to the way it's supposed to be. Because when Christ returns and he sets up his kingdom here on earth, which is what the scripture says is going to happen, new heavens, new earth, God's dwelling will be among men. Okay? When that happens, there will be no homosexual couples. Not one. Something to think about. So we're 
we're we're not anti-gay. We're for the forgiveness of sins for those who've committed homosexual sex. That's plain and simple what Christianity is called to do. Call all men to repentance and the forgiveness of sin. As for feminism, where it conflicts with the clear teaching of the complementarian uh, doctrines written in Scripture by God the Holy Spirit, we must say no. Feminism is a competing system that conflicts with God's Word. And ultimately declare that true freedom for men and women is their proper roles that God has created them and put them into. I'm not a mom, and if I tried to play a mom, I would fail at it miserably. I'm a dad. Okay, My wife does certain things, I do certain things, and we complement each other. And that's true freedom. And so I think the Bible's very liberating for both men and women when we look at the proper roles that God has put us into. And so we pray for Anne Rice as she wrestles with these things. And in some senses, I'm I, I, I'm with I'm easier on Anne Rice in this sense. She's not a pastor or a teacher. She's a layperson struggling through these things. And so we pray that Christ would continue to draw her to himself and pray that God would open her eyes, this poor prodigal woman, and bring her home. But that so many people have seized on to this moment and basically said, oh, yeah, Christianity is terrible. <clears throat> Christianity teaches and proclaims Christ and him crucified for our sins. And Christianity has the not-so-sexy job of making break basically combating all thoughts and making him captive to Christ. You don't get to believe whatever you want regarding God and Christ. Christ has revealed who he is, what he is, and what he's done. And when your ideas conflict with that, Christianity has to call you to repentance and to be forgiven for those false ideas and idolatry. All right, we're up on our second break. When we come back, we're going to do our sermon review. And uh, it's entitled Motocross by uh, Pastor Kerry Shook of Fellowship of the Woodlands in Houston, Texas. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. If you think God is a black woman named Papa, then you need to get out of the shack and read your Bible. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough. Of this sissy, frenzy, turning photo written music, you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway.
Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. All right, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith. Sermon review time. Let's cue up the sermon review music and let's get right to it. The good, the bad, the ugly, we review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We are an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Now, the point of our sermon reviews is to listen, to see what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God, and then comparing it, really, to seeing if it squares. Now, Kerry Shook, who is the pastor who will be preaching today, we've reviewed several of his sermons in the past here at Fighting for the Faith. And he is one of the primary stars in the seeker-driven, purpose-driven church movement. Just had to turn that up because I love that part. That being the case, um, this sermon um, is kind of the epitome of, of what it means to be a seeker-driven, purpose-driven church. The idea is is that you do church for the unchurched. You make it entertaining. You do what it takes to draw them in so that they can make a decision to become a Christ follower. So I want you to listen carefully to the theology taught in this sermon. And in the sermon entitled Motocross, in the sermon you're going to find that Carrie Shook brought in a professional motocross guy and had him jump over um, Kerry Shook during the sermon. Now, if you haven't seen the video, you can. Uh, it's available at alittleleaven.com. I've made it a, uh, an exhibit in my Museum of Idolatry. 
So with that, let's kill the music and uh, let's dive into our sermon proper. Here is Carrie Shook, Fellowship of the Woodlands from Carrie Shook Ministries. Uh, and, and the name of the sermon is Motocross. Do you ever feel powerless in life? Maybe you have a habit that you just feel powerless to break. Or maybe it's a problem in a relationship and you've tried everything to overcome it and it's getting worse. Okay, now this is the problem uh, portion. He gets right to it. He doesn't waste any time. His sermons are not very long. So, I mean, do you ever feel powerless? So this is a, this is a sermon that's going to make it so that you won't feel powerless. It's going to solve the problem of powerlessness in your life. Relationship problems, maybe bad habits. Listen. And you feel powerless to change it. Or maybe it's a problem at work. And it's just draining your energy and your creativity. And you just feel powerless to solve it. Or oh, I mean, can you imagine? How, I mean, talk about powerless. I mean, here you've got a terrible boss. And, it, and the things at work are making you feel they're draining your energy and your creativity. Notice what's going on here. This is victimhood. Or maybe your schedule is overloaded and you feel completely overwhelmed and burnout. Your emotional batteries are just drained and you feel powerless to control your schedule. We all feel powerless at times in life. Now, this motorcycle here has a lot of power. 250 cc's. That's a big engine. It's got a lot of power. But can you imagine if I just pushed this motorcycle around the motocross track? I never kick-started the engine, never tapped into the engine's power, but I just pushed this around the track, over the hills, around the berms and the sharp curves, and I just pushed it all the way around the track. That'd be crazy, wouldn't it? So that's the sermon illustration. So you, do you feel powerless? Well, could you, here I've got a motorcycle. Could you imagine, you know, basically just pushing this motorcycle all around when it has all this power? Now, already you can see where this is going. So Jesus is the motorcycle, and he's supposed to give you power. But that's the way a lot of people face life. We have all this power that's available to us. We have God's horsepower to help us in our lives, to help us in our marriages, to help us in our finances, to help us in our families, to help us in our workplace. We have God's horsepower available to us, but so much of the time, we live life in our own strength. Okay, now I have to ask a question right off the bat. Does God's Word clearly and unequivocally promise all Christians that they can tap into God's power for their marriage, for their life, for their finances, for their career, for, well, you name it, fill in the blank. I mean, so if you're struggling at work and you're, you know, you're feeling, having your energy sapped out of you and you feel your creativity levels are falling uh, like a brick, then all, as a Christian, all you have to do is tap into God's power and your energy levels will increase. Are you struggling financially? Are you, let's say, financially challenged? Are you experiencing real financial poverty in your life? Maybe you didn't get that promotion. Maybe you got demoted. Maybe work has uh, cut pay or, or you're not making enough. And as a result of it, there's nothing left for you to cut in your life. 
and and you, you, you there's nothing else you can do. You your bills are more than what you're taking in, and you've tried to get a new job and everything. So all you have to do is to tap into God's power, and your financial problems will be solved. Does God's word promise that? So let's say, for instance, uh, you've got an unbelieving spouse. You're a Christian, and your wife isn't, or your husband isn't a Christian. All you have to do is to tap into God's power, and your relationship troubles will be solved? Hmm. We try to climb the hills of life and face the problems of life powerless. You know, I want to show you a demonstration of powerlessness. My wife, Chris, and I went out to the motocross track for the first time ever, and we tried motocross. And it was definitely a demonstration of powerlessness. It was pathetic, and fortunately, you get to see it right now. Just watch. Pastor Kerry and Chris, and we're out here at the Three Palms Extreme Sports Park, and I'm with professional motocross racer Steve Dennis. And Steve, how long have you been doing this kind of thing, racing motocross? I uh, started when I was four years old, and so it's about 28 years now. Right, you've been doing it a while now. Steve's going to train Chris and I, and we're going to actually do this because we believe in living life full throttle, so we're going for it. I may not be in the best shape, but, uh, but we look pretty good in these uniforms, don't we? She looks great. So, Chris, what do you want to accomplish today? Well, Steve, we wanted to know if you could teach us how to jump a van. Because we've seen you do that, and we thought you make it look easy. It looks so cool. Um, it's like it'd be a great trick to start with. Well, I, you know, I consider myself a pretty good teacher, so let's let's sure give it a shot. Um, I just, y'all need to sign the release forms first. Did y'all do that? Release forms. Yes. Nobody told me anything about release forms. Hey, we're going to go for it, so I hope everyone is praying for us because we're living life full throttle. It's going to get extreme in just a moment, so get ready. Professional Steve Dennis is going to show us how it's done, and I'm actually going to at least start a motorbike. Uh, so, And you're going to jump over. Now, have you noticed that that was uh, two times now, Carrie Shook has said, we live life full throttle. Uh, apparently, this is a Christian thing to do, living life full throttle. For a van, that's great, Chris. I'll do it with you. Let's all do it. We believe in you, man. We can do it. Yeah. You bet. Okay. Wow. Yeah. I think so, I'm ready, Steve. You're a I, great coach. I think I think we got it. I, I mean, think I'm ready to jump the van. There's there's not much else you need to know. <sighs> Just you got it. It's been nice knowing you. All right. Okay. I just came in a little low, but it's okay. I'm all right, okay? Don't worry. See, that was a pathetic display of powerlessness. 
But now you're going to get to see a real display of power because we have professional motocross racer Steve Dennis right here, right now. And Steve, show us what it's all about. Give him a welcome, guys. Now, again, if you want to see what the stage looks like, and you want to see what this whole jumping portion looks like, go to the Museum of Idolatry at a littleleven.com, and uh, you'll see it. Okay, I mean, he, Kerry Shook paid great money to, uh, you know, to deck this church stage out so that, uh, you know, that it would look like a mountain motocross scene. I mean, it, it, it's, they spared no expenses, none whatsoever. And I want to read what I wrote for this particular um, in, you know, exhibit in the Museum of Idolatry. This is something I talk about from time to time, about relevance being a demanding lover. Uh, the Bible talks about uh, wisdom as a she, that you know she calls out in the streets. And other. I think uh, relevance is like uh, wisdom, except for relevance is um, nothing like char – the character of relevance is nothing like wisdom. Wisdom puts uh, relevance to shame. But uh, relevance is a demanding lover, if you would. And so if you choose to chase after her, she'll insist that the spectacle be bigger and better with each attempt to woo her, or she'll kick you to the curb. Uh, pastor, <clears throat> I mean life coach and circus ringleader Carrie Shook of uh, Fellowship of the Woodlands, which is located north of Houston, Texas, is trying desperately to keep relevance's attention, but it's getting harder and harder to keep her happy. With each passing Sunday, the show that Shook has to put on to keep relevance interested must be more flashy and more glitzy and more expensive. Not too long ago, Shook brought in a professional motocross jumper for one of his sermon illustrations, and he paid big money to have an elaborate outdoor mountain backdrop set on, set on the stage. It was a real crowd pleaser and relevance. She was delighted with it for a few minutes. But rumor has it that relevance has been very upset and pouty because for the next two shows at Fellowship of the Woodlands, they weren't as exciting as the motocross jumping. Uh, what will Carrie Shook do next? Well, if he wants to keep relevance happy, he's going to need to go bigger than motocross Sunday. Don't you all miss the days when God's word and the message of the cross were the thing that people showed up to church for? Now, back then, God's word and the Lord's Supper were enough, and pastors were valued for their proper handling of God's word and the boldness with which they proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. Nowadays, many people show up at some churches to see what's going to happen during the show, and they could care less about Jesus, God's word, and the cross, because they're not at church for any of these things. They're at church to be entertained. We continue. Think he can jump this? Cheer for him and see if he can do it. Come on now, get him going, get him going. Get him going. Woo, yeah. You think he can jump over me? That's a chance you're willing to take, right? Okay. Let's see.
Now that is how it's done. That's real power right there. In life, we have real power that's available to us. We have God's horsepower that's available to us each and every day, but so much of the time, we live life in and of our own strength. It's like pushing a motocross bike all around the track. When we have the engine, all we have to do is kickstart it and tap into God's power for our lives. Is this what the Bible teaches? That all, you know, all we have to do is tap into God's power. Cause, you know, there, God basically exists to give you the power to live life full throttle. Is that what God's word promises? I want you to look at our first verse. I just gotta ask a question. I mean, the Apostle Peter and the Apostle Paul. Both of these men suffered martyrdom. I mean, when you read the litany of the the suffering that Paul went through, I mean, this is a life that nobody would choose for themselves. Can you say that Paul lived his life full throttle? You know, James, he was beheaded. I mean, did he live life full throttle? I mean, don't you think if really the Christian life is all about living your life full throttle and that Jesus really came to show you how to tap into his power so you can really be fulfilled in all these different areas of your life, then don't you think that the apostles would have been the greatest examples of living life full throttle? Verse for the whole series, it's 1 Corinthians one eighteen. if you'll take out your outlines. It says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Underline that phrase, the power of God. We're going to look at how with God's power, we can motor our lives through the obstacle course of life. Because life is a lot like a motor. Adventures in Missing the Point. Let's take a look at this passage. The word of the cross is falling to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Power for what? It's the power of God to make our careers more satisfying, to help us with our finances. That's not what this text is saying. In fact, let's put it back in context. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we'll begin at verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preached to save those who believe for Jews demand signs Greeks seek wisdom but we preach Christ crucified which is a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks Christ the power of God 
and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Do not... Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. You see, 1 Corinthians one eighteen, here Carrie Shook is basically saying, see, for, for the cross is falling to those who are perishing, but to us who believe it's the power of God. See, you have power from God that you can tap into. That's not the kind of power that this is talking about. It's the power of God for our salvation, for our redemption. God does not promise that your life will be lived full throttle. Whatever that even means. We continue. Motocross track. There are a lot of tough turns and sharp curves on the track of life. There are a lot of ruts and deep grooves you can get stuck in on the track of life. You know, there are a lot of bumps and hills. They're called whoops in motocross. Just the normal pains and bumps and bruises and problems on the track of life. And then there are the extreme jumps where you're flying high with success on the track of life. And then there are crashes, those failures on the track of life. And we all crash at times in life. We all experience failures. So I think it's appropriate we start the whole series today by talking about the power to begin again. I mean, how do you start over after a crash? How do you get out of the starting gate and get a fresh start in life after you failed? You know, I've talked to some of these motocross. Does uh, what? So the cross gives us the power to begin again. It's, it's a fresh start in life. Good luck. You got to get it right the second time yourself. Guys, now I've learned a few things. And one of the things I learned is when you're going into a turn and you lean too far and you crash, you fall in. And that's called a low side crash. But when you're going into a turn and then you flip out, it flicks you out. That's called a high side crash. When you crash to the outside, it's a high side crash. And a high side crash is usually a much more violent crash because of the leverage and the G-force. Well, we're going to talk today about a guy in the Bible who took a high side crash on the track of life. But yet God gave him the power to begin again. And he became a great champion for Christ, one of the greatest of all time, Simon Peter. And we're going to learn three things from Simon Peter's life that if you and I apply them to our lives, we can have the power to begin again. Okay, listen. I got to back this up. I want you to hear this. This is quid pro quo stuff. This is pure legalism. This is the law. Okay. The law works with basically this idea. If you do this, then God will do that. Listen again. Bible, who took a high side crash on the track of life, but yet God gave him the power to begin again. And he became a great champion for Christ, one of the greatest of all time, Simon Peter. And we're going to learn three things from Simon Peter's life that if you and I apply them to our lives... We can have the power to begin again. So you look at Peter's life. There's three things that he, that Shook is going to give you. And if 
you apply them, then God will then give you the power for your life. This is not Christian sanctification at all. This is absolutely works righteousness. It doesn't sound like it because he's saying it with a smile on his face, and this isn't the typical tired old uh, pietistic line from the American revivalists and pietists about not drinking, not dancing, not chewing, not smoking, and going out with girls who do. And if you do that and your personal morality is in place, then God will bless you. Okay? Even though it's not that list, it's a different list, it's still a list. If you do these things that Simon Peter did, then God will give you the power to make your life better and give you the power to start over again. We've got a problem here. And we can get a fresh start out of the starting gate of life. Well, the first principle is I need to learn from my losses. I've got to learn from my losses. Every motocross racer loses. But motocross champions learn from their losses and put it behind them. Everybody fails in life. We've got to learn from those failures so that we can move on. Now, Simon Peter was one of the original members of Christ's racing team. In fact, Jesus changed his name from Simon to Peter, which means the rock. And he said, you're going to be the team captain. I'm going to build the whole team on you. You're the rock. You're a champion, Peter. Now, uh, that's not what Matthew 16 says. Okay, if you have your Bible, flip over to Matthew chapter 16. Did Jesus say, I'm going to make you team captain, Peter, and I'm going to build everything on you? That's the same line the Roman Catholics uh, come up with, the same misinterpretation that Roman Catholics use in order to uh, claim that Peter is the first pope, and uh, and they claim, you know, Petrine succession, if you would. Okay, here we go. Matthew chapter 16. Starting at verse 13. Now, when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? They said, well, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Well, he said to them, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. What was Jesus going to build? On the rock of what? Is Peter the rock? No. Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ is the important part here. So Carrie Shook is mis misreading this text and completely twisting it. I mean, he's just referring you to it in passing and not really take, saying what it says. When you read it in context, you realize, wait a second, this story isn't about Jesus, uh, Peter taking a high side crash and Jesus making, you know, saying you're the team leader and I'm going to build everything around you. No, it was Peter's confession that he that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the Living God. That's the confession that the church is built on. Ay ay ay. Let me back this up. You got to hear it cuz I mean this is some this is some slick twisting going on here. Members of Christ's racing team. In fact, Jesus changed his name from Simon to Peter, which means the rock. And he said, "You're going to be the team captain. I'm going to build the whole team on you. You're the rock. You're a champion, Peter." 
Now, Peter became overconfident. He's kind of like us. He became proud. And on the night that Jesus gathered the team in the upper room, the night before the big race, Jesus warned them, this is going to be the most difficult race of your life. The track conditions will be the most difficult you've ever experienced. This is like nothing you've ever faced before. The jumps are higher. The turns are sharper. The condition of the track is not so good. And Jesus warned them, every one of you are going to crash. But Peter said, not me, Lord. Don't you remember? I'm the rock. I'm a champion. I'm not going to crash. You can count on me. I'll be with you at the finish line. I'll be right there with you. I don't care how high the jumps are. I don't care how sharp the curves are. I don't care what condition the track is in. You can count on me. I'm going to be right there with you at the finish line. But then what happens? Right out of the starting gate, Peter crashes. And it's a high side crash. I mean, it's a bad one. He denies Jesus three times. He loses his nerve. He becomes afraid. He doesn't want anyone to even know that he knows Jesus. But look what happens after this crash in Luke 22. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. Folks, that's the picture of deep regret. That's the picture of deep brokenness. Jesus didn't have to say a word to Peter. He just looked at him. He looked at him with compassion. And he looked right into Peter's heart. And he saw the regret, the guilt, the shame. And some of you are right there today. You're right in the middle of a crash. Maybe it's a crash in your marriage, a crash in your family, a crash in your business, or an emotional crash, but you're right there in the middle of a crash. Um, can we talk about sins, please, Carrie? Because here's the deal. You're, you're, your gospel is deficient because you're not properly handling God's law at this point. Yeah, may, maybe you're experiencing a crash in your finances or a crash in your marriage. Hello? repentance and the forgiveness of sins. This is not being properly preached here as a result of it because of his deficient handling of the law. His gospel is going to end up being equally deficient. And Jesus doesn't have to say a word to you. He just looks with compassion right into your heart and he sees the guilt and the regret and the shame. But he does say something to you. He says to you today, because of the power of the cross, Failure is never final. Because of the power of the cross, failure is never fatal. We have the God of the second chance, and he wants... The God of the second chance. If God's a God of the second chance, that means the second chance, it's up to you to get it right the second time. ...to give you the power to begin again. That's what he did for Peter. He gave him the power to begin again. But to begin again, I have to learn from my losses. And to learn from my losses, I have to take on something and I have to let go of something. You have to. You have to. This is absolute law talk. Let's continue. First, I have to take responsibility for my failures. I've got to take responsibility for my failures. I have to own them. Look at Proverbs twenty-eight thirteen. It says, A man who refuses to admit his mistakes can never be successful. But if he confesses and forsakes them, he gets another chance. When I admit my mess-ups, I... <laughs> what was that verse again? Hang on. ...for my failures. I've got to take responsibility for my failures. I have to own them. Look at Proverbs 28, 13. Okay, we got to <clears throat> just do a little work here. <laughs> Proverbs 
28 and 13. Now, hang on a second here. Whoever conceals his transgression will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Huh. That's what the ESV says. Let's read the NASB. Hang on. He who conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. Hey, NIV. Hang on a second here. Um, he who conceals his sins but does not uh, does not prosper, but whoever confesses and renounces them finds mercy. Where is he getting this idea that uh, if you confess your sins, you'll get a second chance? Is that in the message? Hang on. I don't even own a copy of the message. Hang on a second here. Uh, let's see here. BibleGateway.com. Let's see if I can find this. Um, Proverbs. Um, this is uh, 28.13. Hang on a second here. Proverbs 28.13. Um, all right. Hang on a second. Do they have the message here? Yes, they have the message of Bible Gateway. Let me see if he's if that's from the um, Proverbs twenty eight thirteen. You can't whitewash your sins and get by with it. You find mercy by admitting and leaving them. No, he's not reading from the message. The message is even better than what he's reading. Where is he finding this? Yeah, the, something's supremely wrong here. Um, so wrong, I don't even know what translation he's using because uh, all the reputable translations and even one disreputable one don't say what he's saying that this verse says. Let me read it again. He who conceals his sin does not prosper, but whoever confesses and renounces them finds mercy. Proverbs 28.13 sounds a lot like what Christ tells the church to proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins mercy uh-huh well carrie shook here is uh taking liberties with the text that he has no liberty to take liberties with and he's come up with his own version of it here again is carrie shook listen again for my failures got to take responsibility for my failures i have to own them look at proverbs twenty-eight thirteen. it says a man who refuses to admit his mistakes can never be successful but if he confesses and forsakes them, he gets another chance. Yeah, the Bible doesn't say that at all. That's not what that says. This is a false gospel that you're hearing, by the way, folks. Jesus is not the God of the second chance. Because you need more than two chances. In fact, an infinite number of chances wouldn't be enough for you to get your act together. So Christ did it all for you perfectly the first time himself. He was sinless. Yeah, that's important. Christ lived the law perfectly, and his righteousness is imputed to you by faith. He gets your sins, you get his righteousness. It's a great exchange. When I admit my mess-ups, I get another chance. No, the Bible doesn't teach this. This is like Rick Warren's mulligan theory of the atonement. It's absolute heresy. When I take responsibility for my failures and don't blame other people, God forgives, and I get another chance. Really? Uh-huh. You know, we live in a society that just plays the blame game all the time. Well, it's not my fault. I did this because they did that to me. It's their fault. We blame everybody. We blame our husband or our wife or our family members. We blame our company. We blame the boss. We blame everybody. 
But we have to look in the mirror and take responsibility for our actions. And see, and when you do that, you get a second chance, and then you better get it right the second time or else. I have to admit my sins so that I can be forgiven. I have to admit my failures so that I can learn from my failures. Peter was proud. Yes, it's true that when we confess our sins, God, who is faithful and just, will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But what's this other part of it? What's this thing tacked onto it so that you can learn from your failures? What theology is this? He had been arguing with the other disciples over who was the greatest among them. But after his crash, it wiped out all his pride. In fact, he felt like God could never use him again. But just the opposite was true. God could finally use him. See, God can't use me when I'm proud because then he doesn't get the credit for all the great things he would do in my life. God can use me and God can use you when we're broken. And some of you are at that place right now, totally broken. You're right in the middle of the pain of a crash. And I want you to know it's a good place to be. It's a painful place, but that place of pain is the Oh, every time I hear this guy, I feel my testosterone levels just absolutely take a dip. Seriously? Come on, Carrie. Seriously? What is this? What is this theology? Where did you get it from? Because I'm not seeing this in the scriptures. Place of new beginnings. It's where God can use you. He has to wait until we get to that place of brokenness. And all our pride is just wiped out because of the wipeouts in our lives. And then God can use us have to take on something, then I have to let go of something. These are the things you got to do, yeah. I have to let go. Yeah, where is this clearly spelled out in scriptures again? You know, because I, I remember Paul's conversion story. Yeah, are you familiar with it? I think that might even have been in today's uh, scripture reading. Hang on a second here. Uh, flipping over to my... Uh, um, I, I do a website where I put a, the scripture readings for the day up. Today's scripture reading was from Acts chapter 24 through 26. Okay, let's see here. Um, yeah, okay, so Paul is speaking for himself. I think this is, um, yeah, listen to this carefully. This is Paul speaking before King Agrippa, I think this is Acts 25. Hang on, Let me, I don't have the reference up. Acts 25, let's see here. Right, 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 right. Uh, okay, here we go. Actually, 26, Acts chapter 26. And uh, reading from the ESV. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate, that is, before you, King Agrippa, I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope I am accused by Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? 
I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. And at midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Um, where was Paul's high side crash that brought him low so that God can, quote, finally use him? The way I read the story, the history of what happened, Paul was on his way to Damascus to round up Christians and have them brought back and flogged, beaten, and maybe even killed. Um, he didn't have a high side crash. He didn't have a low side crash. He didn't even humble himself. He was on his way to persecute Christians, and Christ appeared to him and called him. Jesus didn't say, I'm just waiting for that guy to finally be humbled so I can finally use him. Paul's conversion completely blows apart the theology the false theology that Kerry Shook is preaching in this sermon. Let's continue. Go of my guilt. After a rider falls, after a rider crashes, it's important to get back on the bike as soon as possible to overcome their fears. And today, some of you feel like you've fallen. Today, some of you feel like you've gone so far off God's track, you can never get back on track. You feel like you've blown it. You're totally out of God's will for your life. And you feel like the race is over for you. I want you to know the race is not over for you. Maybe you feel like you've gone so far off track you can never get back on. No, God says, I still have a race for you to run. Because we have the God of the second chance. See, again, this, uh, this is a false theology. This is a false gospel. The call of the gospel is repentance and the forgiveness of sins. And here we've got, we don't have repentance. We have, oh no, 
Will God ever be able to use me again? (laughs) I want to be used by God. Don't worry. God can use you still. He's the God of the second chance. All you need is some is some Jesus gleam. Apply Jesus gleam to your forehead and you'll be sparkly clean and God will pick you so he can use you again for all kinds of wonderful, neat and wonderful things in life. Yeah, Jesus gleam. That's what this stuff is. After Christ rose from the dead, the angel was at the tomb and look what the angel said in Mark sixteen seven. But go tell his disciples and Peter. I love that verse. He is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. See, the angel said, he's alive, he's not here. So you need to go tell the disciples he's alive. Oh, and don't forget Peter. Remember, Peter's still included. He's still one of the disciples. Don't forget Peter. See, Jesus knew that Peter was totally broken and he felt like God could never use him again. He felt like he'd completely blown it. His life was over. The race was over for him. But Christ wanted him to know, Peter, I still have a race for you to run. I know how you're feeling. But just know you're still included. I still have a plan for your life. I'm going to give you the power to begin again, to become a great champion for me. Today, God says to you, I want to give you the power to begin again. I have a great plan for you, a great race for you to run. I want you to become a champion in life. But I Was Peter a champion in life? I mean, we're at... Oh, man. I have to let... This is just absolutely preaching to scratch itching ears go of something, I have to let go of my guilt. And that's my responsibility. God forgives me through the power of the cross, but then I have to let go of my guilt because guilt blinds me. Hang on a second. That was a gospel nugget. Man, that was flying so fast. Wow. Almost missed it. Holy cow. Yeah, but it's tacked on with something else. Let's back it up and let's hear what he's doing to it. But I have to let go of something. I have to let go of my guilt. And that's my responsibility. God forgives me through the power of the cross, but then... There was the gospel nugget. Then there's a but. And I have to let go of my guilt because guilt blinds me to God's vision for my future. Guilt will blind... What? Guilt blinds you to God's vision for your future? Chapter and verse, please, Carrie. You to God's vision and God's plan for your future. Some of you feel like you have no future because of the guilt from your past. You're just stuck in the past, and you can't move beyond the past. I got news. Uh, Some of the people attending his uh, church, um, they have no future. They'll be dead next week or next year. Yeah, death happens. You know, motocross racers wear goggles. Now, the problem is dirt and mud is flying up all the time from the track, and it gets on your goggles, and you can't see a thing. After a while, you can't see through all the mud and all the dirt that's on the goggles, especially if you're like me and you're at the very back of the pack and all the dirt and mud is coming at you. And that's the way it is with guilt. Guilt just fills up your screen. It muddies up the screen. It muddies up your vision for what God can do in your future. You get stuck in the past looking in the rearview mirror and you don't look out to see what God has for you. You think, you know, God doesn't have anything for me. My race is over because of my mistakes and my sins in my past. But motocross racers know when... Oh, man. I mean, what is this great future that everybody's supposed to have? Are we all going to become presidents of the United States? Their visors, their goggles get completely muddied over. They just have these little strips of plastic. They just tear them off and throw them away. And then a few minutes later, 
gets muddy again, gets dirty again, they just tear it off, throw it away. A little bit later, it gets muddy again and just tear another one off, throw it away. And that's what you and I have to do with our guilt. See, our vision becomes muddied and clouded. Our vision becomes clouded because of our guilt and regret from our past mistakes. And we can't see the future that God has for us and the race that He wants us to run. But you and I have to choose to let go of our guilt, to tear it off and throw it away so that we can see the future that God has for us. See, some of you are still feeling guilty over a sin that you've already confessed to God. He's forgiven you. It's just that you've never decided to tear away the guilt and let go of it. And today you need to let go of your guilt. Call me misguided. I've been called worse. But um, when somebody is dealing with guilt issues over sins that are obviously, you know, Christ died for, you need to bring them back. I recommend private absolution for them to hear directly that their sins are forgiven, that they personally are forgiven by Christ. They need to hear that. They need to be brought back and hear personally that Christ has died for their sins and their particular sin in general. When you understand that Christ died for it, that it's forgiven, that it's conquered by Christ's death and resurrection, um, the uh, the power of guilt loses its power. You, 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 no one gets to trump Jesus. Ah. Stop looking in the past. The past is over. Start looking at your future. You've got a bright future. Your future is as bright as the promises of God. Like what? Give me an example. I agree. My future is really bright. After I die, after Christ returns, this side of that, I can't, I can't guarantee that. No, I, I don't even know what tomorrow is going to bring. I could be dead. But you've got to let go of your guilt and tear it off. Throw it away so you can see the future that God has for you. Peter began to learn to do that. He took responsibility. He owned his failure, didn't blame anyone else. And then he started letting go of his guilt into God's unconditional love. Chapter and verse, please, where does it say this in Scripture? So the first thing I have to do to begin again is learn from my losses. And then the second thing I can do is surrender to God's strength. Once I learn from my losses, I have to surrender to God's strength. I have to rev up the engine of God's power. To begin again, I need God's power. I can't change in my own strength. Look what Jesus said in Luke 9, 23. Then he said to them all, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Jesus said, I must deny myself to find fulfillment. I have to deny myself and follow God's plan and God's path and God's way and God's purpose for my life. And that brings total fulfillment. It's just the opposite of what the world says. It's not satisfy myself. It's deny myself. Peter denied. Yeah, but isn't this a self-satisfying sermon? Because here you're basically saying you got to let go of the guilt so that you can, ex- you, can, you can have a clear vision for the big things that God has planned for you. This doesn't sound like a deny myself sermon. This like is totally focused on self sermon. I'd Christ and he crashed. But when he learned to deny himself, he became a champion. But what does it mean in this verse to take up my cross daily? Well, the cross can only mean one thing, death. It means death. It means I need to die to my selfishness and my trying to live my life in my own strength and surrender to his power and his strength every day. Yeah, but <clears throat> it's a daily. Isn't it? supreme selfishness 
to have as your, quote, motivation uh, to do anything so is so that you can have a vision for the big thing that God has planned for your life. This entire sermon hinges on a selfish motivation. God has a big plan for your life, but you've got to you've got to do these things. You've got to take these steps. You've got to forgive yourself and all this other kind of stuff that you need to do so that then you can experience and see the big plan that God has for your life. So here Carrie Shook is basically quoting the passage that talks about denying yourself when the entire motivation that he's giving here for somebody to make a decision for Jesus is that God has a big plan for them. Yeah, he has a huge... And see, you can become a champion just like Peter. Peter was a champion. You can be a champion too, but you've got you've to apply these steps. And then you can get a vision for the big plan that God has for your life. This isn't a self-denying sermon. Carrie Shook is engaging in complete doublespeak at this point. beginning again every day in my life i come to this place where i realize i can't do it every day i come to this place where i say you know i want to be a great dad but i I just feel worn out right now i just feel selfish i want to be a great husband but right now i just don't have the love that i need i want to be a great pastor but i don't have any energy right now every day in my life i come to this place where i fall on my face and say god i can't do it i give up and god says finally i've been waiting for that now I can get involved and give you my power and my strength. See, Yeah, again, read this conversion story of Paul. I just read it to you. None of those things happened. God's not up there sitting there going, oh, I'm waiting for you to finally just, you know, whatever. Oh, I'm, my hands are tied until you can come to the realization you can't do it without my power. I'm just sitting up here powerless waiting for you to make the decision that you're not powerful enough to do it without my help. And once you come to that realization, then I can help you. I can give you the power you need. The scriptures don't teach any of this stuff. Every day is a new beginning. It's a daily process to learn from my losses, and then to surrender to his power, to deny myself and die to myself and my selfishness and let him give me the strength. I have to let God take the handlebars of my life each and every day. and let So that I can have what I want. Let him steer my life where he wants to steer it. You know, the best way I know how to illustrate this is he wants us to take up our cross and die to ourselves. He wants me every day to come to the cross And I have to come to the cross with my plans, what I want to do, all my goals, and I have to come and nail them to the cross. Say, God, what? I have to bring my plans and my goals, and I need to nail them to the cross. No, that's not what the cross is about. The cross is not about me surrendering and sacrificing my dreams so that God can say, oh, finally, now I can give you the power that you need so that you can achieve your dreams. That's what Kerry Shook is basically preaching here. Uh, Colossians chapter 2, if you have your Bible, let's flip over there. I'm not there yet. Hang on, Colossians (laughs) 2. Therefore, verse 6, as you receive Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, according, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy 
and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in Christ, the whole fullness of the deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all in rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God has made alive together with Christ, having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, and this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Yeah, see, we don't take our dreams and visions and plans for our lives and nail them to the cross. No, what was nailed to the cross was basically a cancellation notice regarding our sin, and the notice said, debt paid in full. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, he set it aside, nailing it to the cross. Saying that, you know, what, you know if you want to have your plans and your visions for your life, you gotta, you got to nail them to the cross, and only then will God see that you're humble enough so that then he'll give you the power so that you can have your plans and visions for your life. This is the height of arrogance. This is the height of pride. This is the height of a quid pro quo legalistic religion. If you do this, then God will do that. Let me back it up just a few seconds here. Listen again. He wants me every day to come to the cross, and I have to come to the cross with my plans, what I want to do, all my goals, and I have to come and nail them to the cross. Say, God, my plans are your plans. I want what you want for me because I know you know what's best for me. I want your plans. And then I have to bring my dreams. And I say, God, here are my dreams. You know, I've got some big dreams, but I give you my dreams and I nail them to the cross. And I want you to take my dreams and take my ego out of them, my selfishness out of them, and give them back to me is your dream, what you want for my life, because I know you know what's best for me. And then I have to take my time to God every day and say, God, I give you my time. It's yours. I want to spend my time the way you want me to. I nail my time to the cross. Man, this is awful. And if I have any interruptions in my day, I know they're from you. And then I have to take my money, my finances, and say, God, it's really yours. Everything I have is yours. You've given it to me. I nail it to the cross. And I want to do what you want me to do with my finances. They're yours. See, basically, folks, what it comes down to is I have to take my whole life and take it right to the cross. And every day, I've got to die to myself. My time, my plans, my dreams, my relationships. I've got to come to the cross each and every day of my life and die to myself so that I can live to Him and surrender to His power. And it's a daily process where I fall flat on my face. Then I die to myself and I feel his power in my life. See, Peter had been... Yeah, you notice that Christ's death on the cross was the fleeting thing that God just went through so quickly you would have missed it unless I pointed it out. But here, mm, oh, the, the big sacrifice. 
Yeah, that's what you do. Yeah. Oh, you, you, yeah. See, we, we're now going to turn the cross into I have nailed my dreams, my vision, my finances. My, I've nailed my time to the cross. Look at the sacrifice I have made. See how humble I am, God. Now you can bless me. Big plans and big dreams, but his dream had to die so that God could resurrect it. And he had no ego anymore in it, no selfishness. It was God's dream, which was best for him. God knows what's best for us. So if I learn from my losses, I surrender to God's strength. And the third thing, I can pursue God's path. I can pursue God's path. It's all a trust issue. I have to trust him that he knows what's best for me. And he wants the best for you more than you even want the best for yourself. He loves you that much. But it's a trust issue. comes down to that. I'll never surrender my life to him unless I trust him. And I'll never trust him until I get to know him. The more I get to know him, the more I spend time with him, the more I realize he's trustworthy. Now, Peter began to depend on God's power and trust God's path for his life. And God used him powerfully. Because of God's power, Peter proclaimed the gospel boldly on the day of Pentecost. Over 3,000 people trusted Christ and were baptized. And he was on the road to becoming a great champion for Christ. Following Christ's road no matter where it led because he knew that God ultimately had the best in mind for him. That God had the plan that he should follow. And when you pursue God's path, you can go full throttle in life. Why don't you tell them the part about where Peter... Uh, was ordered to be crucified by Nero and how Nero brought him out to be crucified in the infield, the middle section of a place called the Circus of Nero. Now, circuses back in those days were not like the monkeys and the chimpanzees and the elephants and the big tent and the three rings. No, no, no. A circus was like, you know, a place where you went to go and watch chariot races. It was like a hippodrome. And in the infield is where Peter his full his full throttle life came to an end. He was crucified. And when they were getting ready to crucify him, he had a little bit of a fit because he didn't think himself to be worthy to suffer the same death as his Lord. And so they basically said, suit yourself. And so they crucified him upside down because that's different than the way Jesus died. And while Peter was dying while being crucified in the infield of this place called the Circus of Nero, Nero mounted onto a chariot and participated in chariot races while Peter was being martyred. Look at this next verse in Psalm 119.32. It says, I run in the path of your commands, for you have set my heart free. When you follow God's path, you can go full throttle. God yeah, I want to point something out. Have you noticed something about Carrie Shook's handling of God's word? A bunch of ripped out of context verses. One completely a dubious translation. Ripped out of context verses strung together on a clothesline telling a story that the Bible doesn't tell when you put those verses back in their context. Making assertions about Christianity and God and what God will do for you that are not taught in the Bible. This is all just pure assertion on his part. And the way he was able to build this story that he's telling was basically ripping a whole bunch of verses out of context to make God's word say something that it doesn't teach. God gives us his commands not to slow us down, but to set us free to go full throttle. See, the Christian life is the most exciting and exhilarating and frightening and scary and fulfilling and rewarding life there is. 
It's full throttle. It is. Yeah, because if you want, if you're an adrenaline junkie, then Christianity's for you. All out. It is high adrenaline. That's the plan God has for you. That's the track He's laid out for you. You can go full throttle. I took my family one time on a beach vacation. And there were all these wave runners there. How many have ever ridden a wave runner? They're a lot of fun, aren't they? Well, we signed up for this wave runner expedition. It was an hour and a half tour. And when we started, our guide gathered us around and he said, how many of you want to go fast? Raise your hand. Our whole family raised our hand. He said, well, good, because we're going to go full throttle for an hour and a half. All out, 35, 40 miles an hour in this expedition. It's going to be one of the craziest things you've ever done. You're going to have so much fun. But you have to follow me. You have to stay right in my line right behind me in my wake, because if you go 20 or 30 feet outside of my wake, we're in a reef system, and I'm going to weave in and around these reefs, and I know where they are, and you don't. So if you go 20 or 30 yards outside my wake, you're going to hit a reef, and it's going to be fun for all of us to watch, but it's not going to be very fun for you. In fact, he said, we've life-lighted people out of here before. Well, that got my attention, and it made me want to lower my hand and not go fast. But then I realized, wait a minute, this guy, he's done this every day. I can trust this 20-year-old college dropout <laughs> who's probably been smoking pot. No, I, don't I mean, where do you go to college to learn how to do Wave Runner? Wave Runner University, you know? And anyway, now I had to think, this guy's been doing this a lot. I'm going to trust my life to him, put my life in his hands. I'm going to follow him. And I went... Full out, full throttle for that hour and a half. And my daughter, Megan, was on the back of my wave runner holding on for dear life. And it was so fun as we were bouncing over those waves, going 35, 40 miles an hour, all out trying to hold on with all of our might. And we were following him. You know, I felt the wind in my hair, I mean, my face. And I, <laughs> the waves splashing on me. And it, you just felt so alive. And that's exactly the way the Christian life is. It's so exciting. It's so exhilarating. It's frightening. It's scary. It's rewarding. It's fulfilling all at the same time. And when you're following the guide, you're in good hands. So Jesus is the guide to this exhilarating life. Really, can people get their tithe money back if they end up, you know, not having an exhilarating time in their Christianity? You're selling Christianity based upon promises that are not made in Scripture. When you're following the guide, but when you move away from the guide and you stop following the guide's wake, you're in trouble. You can't go fast. You can't enjoy life. God gives us His commands not to make us miserable, but so that we can enjoy life. <sighs> what a train wreck. Wow. You see, again... Rick Warren promised us when his book came out in the mid-90s, The Purpose Driven Church, that the message was timeless and wouldn't be changed. That all these methods were just ways of, you know, making the, the gospel relevant to, you know, people outside of the church and helping giving them, you know, meeting their felt needs. And this is a good thing because this is how the church grows. But the message will stay the same. Don't worry, we're going to preach the same gospel. That wasn't the same gospel at all. This was truly a sermon designed to meet felt needs. Apparently, the felt need that needs to be uh, uh, addressed here is the felt need for the feeling of satisfaction in life and uh, and, a, and a full-throttle life of excitement. Oh, you want that? Don't worry. Christianity can offer you that. 
I promise you. No, the Bible doesn't promise that. There are plenty of Christians who live day-to-day existence kind of lives. And their, quote, Christian life is anything but exciting. The same God who made the universe is with people who live in a routine. And Christianity doesn't promise the time of a life. It promises the forgiveness of sins, won by Christ on the cross. Promises persecution. Promises that your confession of Christ might tear your family apart. Yeah, is that the kind of excitement you want? Because that's the kind of excitement that Christ promises. might get you beaten. It might get you flogged. It might get you murdered. It might get you martyred. It's not about the adrenaline. It's not about some big plan or vision for your life. It's about the forgiveness of sins and the hope of glory when Christ returns someday in the near future to judge the living and the dead, to call us from our graves, and for us to live life eternal with him. That's what it promises. But Christianity, the scriptures nowhere promise an adrenaline junkie life of excitement and full throttle living. In fact, choosing to live life the way God has commanded us to live it could really make your life miserable. And I mean that. There'll be times when it's rewarding, but the rewarding part of it will be despite all the fact that your friends think you're a nut, that you lose friends, that family members don't talk to you, that maybe you're... you. you, you Missed an opportunity for a promotion because everyone knows you're a Jesus nut. Is that the kind of excitement and full throttle living you're all looking for? Again, the Bible promises nothing like that, but it does promise that Christ died for your sins and for mine. It does promise that Christ shed blood on the cross washes away your sins. It does promise that those who trust in Christ, who are given that gift of faith, that their sins are forgiven and that they have a right relationship and right standing with the God who created them. It does promise that. And it promises that on the last day you will be raised again to life eternal. It promises that. And that you'll see God face to face and not have to shirk back in fear. Not have to shirk back in knowing that you've screwed up. But you'll hear from God because of what Christ has done for you. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. That's what it promises. And the future after Christ returns is so bright and so glorious that we haven't even... We don't have the capacity to even fathom it. Not in the sinful, fallen state. But Christ promises to return for us. And he's preparing a place for us. That he has promised. 
there will be no sin, no sickness, no death, no disease in that new creation which Christ will bring with him when he comes. I can promise you that because Scripture promises us that, all of us. But this side of Christ's return, this side of the day of judgment, mm, no, full throttle life, no, I, I don't see it in Scripture. Maybe troubles, maybe persecution, maybe death, maybe martyrdom, maybe ho-humness. See, even people who are slaves, Christ died for them, and even slaves have a bright future in Christ. Not this side of Christ's return, but on the other side of it. Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. What'd you think? I'd love to get your feedback. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. Amen.